Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast today on the pod. As interest rates continue their steep climb upwards, debt-burdened homeowners are now demanding the Bank of Canada put the brakes on their fight against inflation. Plus, Municipal Affairs reporter Francis Bila joins me to discuss who's up and who's down before Election Day. And can this region be big and bold in its decisions anymore? Former Mayor and Premier Mike Harcourt weighs in. That's all next on the Jazz Jehoshua Podcast. Well, today, the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin said a strong U.S. dollar may mean the Bank of Canada will have more work to do on interest rates, and it's something the central bank is watching closely. The Canadian dollar has tumbled 8.5% versus the U.S. dollar since August as aggressive interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve and financial market volatility uh, triggered gains for the uh, safe haven, which is the greenback. Now, the Bank of Canada has been rapidly hiking its benchmark interest rates uh, in the wake of skyrocketing inflation, issuing five consecutive hikes. Four of them uh, would be described as outsized, I believe. Since March, the central bank's key rate has gone from 0.25% to 3.25%, the highest level since April of 2008 when the Bank of Canada was slashing rates uh, in the midst of the global financial crisis. Rate increases, of course, impact our ability to borrow and, of course, to service debt. debt and the real estate market is certainly feeling the effects of that as well. Uh, BC's housing market has kept its cool last month with a decrease in residential unit sales, uh, quite staggering as well, up to 45%. Joining me now to discuss sort of the state of uh, the real estate market here in the Lower Mainland and, of course, our fight against inflation is Steve Soretsky. He's a realtor for Oakwin Realty. Hello, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, I wanted to chat with you because bec- uh, it's it's an issue that I think we all discuss uh, quite frequently, the impact, of course, of interest rates on, on uh, real estate here in the Lower Mainland. Your sense of uh, uh, the impact it's having uh, on the real estate market here in Vancouver, perhaps you can provide us a snapshot of what you're seeing. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, sales volumes are, are really quite weak, you know, we're bounce around between 20 to 30 year lows depending on the month so uh you know historically very very weak sales volumes um you know i think buyers are sort of in shock with with you know how quickly interest rates have risen and obviously that's made payments you know a lot more expensive and so buyers are now saying well hey you know my payments are up going to be going up this much shouldn't the prices come down and so the prices are coming down but perhaps not fast enough to offset the increase in rates and so there seems to be a bit of a standoff right now finding the gap between you know what buyers are willing to pay and what sellers are willing to actually sell for uh, is, is widening and that's uh, it's making it very challenging obviously to to put sales together mm-hmm. uh, we are expecting another rate hike uh, at the end of this month uh, uh, 0.50 percent half a percent uh, not as uh, significant as some of the past uh, but still significant in the grand scheme of things uh, where do you see the market in five or six months or have we has it found a bottom yet or is there more to do uh well i mean let's put this in simple terms so you know by you know, bank of canada will raise let's say 50 basis points come october 26 that pushes your variable rate very very close more or less let's call it six percent so you're gonna have a variable interest rate of six percent your fixed rates right now in the last week have been going up uh, as bond yields move higher so your fixed rate uh, could very well have a six handle in front of it as well come November. So uh, if you're asking me if the market can digest mortgage rates at 6%, I am skeptical of that. I think that there's probably some more room to go. Um, so I think the, the trajectory of the housing market really depends on on interest rates and inflation. 
So that's really the bet that you know buyers and sellers are making right now is, is where is inflation, where is interest rates in six months from now. Are you seeing deals fall apart uh, just because of the volatility that's out there right now? Uh, yeah, I think definitely today I'm, we're finding a, a, a normal amount, uh, you know, a higher than usual amount of of deals that are tied up with subject conditions are, are not going through. Uh, I think buyers are, you know, some buyers are just getting cold feet. Some buyers are in shock because, you know, they thought they had a, a, a rate hold at 4%, but that has now expired and the new rate is five and a half percent and they weren't expecting that. So, the, you know, so we're seeing a lot of these deals now falling apart or inspections, any little item that comes up in inspection, buyers want to try to renegotiate it, get the price down. So, you know, it's a buyer's market um and so yeah it's just it's it is what it is uh do you think this is the right course to take in regards to what the bank of canada is doing or or do you think it's going to run out of some runway in regards to you know somewhere along the way there is a limit in regards to these interest rate hikes in regards to what the average person can afford uh, servicing debt uh, whether they bought you know, uh, 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 got something on variable rate, or that they they have a, a second or third property that they've invested in, perhaps leveraging themselves. Do you think this is still the right course of action for for this uh, country to be taking in regards to inflation? Well, I mean, hey, you're you know you're asking a real estate guy, so you guys probably you, you know you probably already know my answer. But I think like the Bank of Canada's own terminology suggests that you know it takes minimum six months for. For interest rate hikes to you know start filtering through the economy, right? So we haven't even actually witnessed or experienced w- what these rate hikes are really going to do to the overall economy. So, I mean, we're obviously hell bent on front loading. I think that I think that the they probably are going to push too far. I mean, they were very very late on uh, hiking interest rates to begin with. I mean, the the irony here is they started raising rates officially one month after the national housing market peaked in February. So to suggest that they're going to get this one correct, I, I'm very skeptical. I, I think that they've been wrong for a number of years, and I think that, uh, you know, the damage uh, that's coming from, from the level of interest rates I think is going to be probably larger than most people are anticipating. Well, I look forward to having you on the show again, my friend. It's a very interesting time and a challenging time for a lot of Canadians as well when it comes to interest rates. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Well, today, Mayor Kennedy Stewart received a high-profile endorsement from former mayor and premier Mike Harcourt. Mr. Harcourt served as mayor from 1980 to 1986 in an era where many tough decisions had to be made for the city and the region, including saying no to freeways in the city of Vancouver. Our discussion about how we define livability is incredibly polarized at, at times, so I thought it was time we brought on Mike Harcourt to discuss the challenges before our region and, of course, before the city of Vancouver. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Glad to, Jazz. Good to hear you back on the airwaves. Well, you know, I know you've spent, uh, well, your entire political career talking about urbanism and cities and and housing, and housing has played such a big role in this conversation, in this uh, campaign. Your overall thoughts, first and foremost, uh, do you think the city is heading in the right direction in regards to density, in regards to livability, from what you've seen? Well, I think we're heading in the right direction in terms of density and using urban land, scarce urban land, better. And uh, as you know, Vancouver is uh, population uh, stressed in terms of growth. We're such a wonderful place. Everybody wants to come here. But we're geographically really restricted. You know, you've got in in the Vancouver area, you've got uh, the uh, ocean to the west. You've got 
the mountains to the north and and the uh, to the south you've got the the border and to the south and the east you've got you know some of the best farmland in the world uh with a huge uh, river, important river, going all the way through it, the Fraser River. So we have our challenges, and, and but they can be met, and they've been met in the past, they can be met in the future, including building lots of affordable housing, which I think uh, it could fix a whole bunch of issues all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think density, uh, and I'm talking towers, mm-hmm. is the right direction? There's been partially that conversation, and some have said, look, density isn't going to uh, help us deal with some of our core challenges. As density is uh, sort of defined now, is that the right direction you think the city needs to go in? Yes, I, I think we should have abolished single-family uh, housing zoning decades ago. Uh, you know, it's a way to, it was a white elephant then when we were dancing around secondary suites, and and uh, then, you know, then we moved from there into allowing lane cottages and all that. I mean, I did a I did a little development. Becky and I did in, in, on the Fairview slopes. In, in the 1970s, we took an old clunker of a house mm-hmm. uh, on 7th Avenue, tore it down on a 40-foot lot, and built three units. Could have built four. Uh, and I think we should have done that all over the city in the single-family zoning decades ago. Uh, you endorsed Kennedy Stewart today. Uh, I'm assuming you speak, uh, spoke to some of the other uh, candidates as well. Why Mr. Stewart's uh, plans and policies did you like more than perhaps some of the others? Well, you're right. I have spoken to Ken Sims, and I have spoken to Mark Marison, and uh, and I've spoken to Kennedy. And I, I said, well, to me, the key is what you're going to do about housing. I don't want cliches. I want to know what's your plan in some detail. And uh, uh, the best plan I've seen is Kennedy's, and I think it's bold. I think it's doable. He wants to do 220,000 units of housing total over the next 10 years. And if you link that to uh, what the province is doing, and Dave Eby is pushing really hard, is uh, they want the province is committed to building 114,000 units of uh, affordable housing uh, over 10 years. They're four years into it. They've got 50,000 of those built or underway. And I think you combine those two and get the feds off their butt and back into the housing game, uh, we, we could fix it pretty soon because we've got probably one of the best, if not the best, development uh, community, very sophisticated, very good, anywhere in, in the world. Uh, the construction firms have got uh, real skills and they've got the capacity and good workers. And uh, the banks um, are slowing down on funding uh, a lot of the commercial condo developments. And so they've got, everybody's got capacity. And I think if we bring everybody together, we can uh, solve the affordable housing problem in three to five years. When you were mayor, uh, made some big decisions uh, collectively as a council, a freeway, free city. I mean, those, those, there was a lot of pressure uh, back in the do- back in the day to make some decisions that we are very proud of today that you didn't make or you stopped. Do you think the vision and more importantly the will is there not only just in the city of Vancouver but in the region to make some of these tougher decisions uh, that will hopefully help the city be a, a livable region for a long time? Uh, the short answer is yes. And the reason I say that, Jazz, is I spend a lot of time and energy looking at not just all the candidates and their platforms and their running uh, mates uh, in Vancouver. I've, I've checked out the rest of the region. And what I find really encouraging is the number of people that have come forward to run for mayor and council and the quality of the people. I mean, there are some terrific people running uh, all over the region. 
and uh, you know a few exceptions here and there, but but the quality of the people and their enthusiasm to tackle the big tough issues is really quite extraordinary, and I think very positive and very encouraging. So uh, my sense is that um, the the big tough issues, housing being number one, uh, dealing with a subset of that, which is the housing the homeless, particularly the uh, complex care hard and hardest to house. 150 or so in the downtown east side, uh, 300 in, in total in, in Vancouver, and about 1,500 throughout uh, the province who are mentally ill, chronically addicted, a lot of them uh, brain damaged from injuries and uh, misuse of drugs, and, and, and we've failed them, and we, we can treat them better. And I've got a, a group that I'm with called Building Community Society that has a, a lot of really neat people, uh, particularly probably the best uh, psychiatrist in, in the city and, and the country in this area and who's been treating them for many years, Bill McEwen, Dr. Bill McEwen, and uh, others like Ethel Whitty, who ran the Carnegie Center, was the city's housing mm-hmm. person for a number of years, and, and, and a whole bunch of other people, Larry Beasley, the ex-city planner, and Paul Sullivan, who you know about, and uh, communications uh, media guy, and Roger Hughes, who's a very good architect in town. And, and we're, we've developed a program to uh, house, treat successfully the really tough ones that are causing uh, the 20% of the homeless who are causing 80% of the attacks and, and the aggravation that people are suffering now. And I think, I think we've got a plan to fix that. And I think we can, and it's being backed by uh, Kennedy uh, Stewart and DVB in the province and, uh, and, and a lot of people in and around uh, the city who are willing to step up. So I think our solution is housing, uh, dealing with uh, the homeless, uh, the mentally ill, the addicted, uh, the opioid crisis. These are these are problems we can fix. We just need to do them intelligently and succeed. Well, Mike, uh, I really look forward to chatting with you again on this issue because uh, you've got extensive knowledge, uh, obviously as former mayor and premier, but just uh, your time talking about urbanism and, and, and building livable cities. Look forward to chatting with you again. Great to hear your voice again, my friend. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Jazz. I really enjoyed uh, and, and welcome back and enjoyed talking with you. We'll do it again. Absolutely, my friend. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. On Sunday, temperatures will soar beyond 30 degrees Celsius in some parts of the region. Inland in Burnaby and Surrey, temperatures are forecast to feel like 30 degrees Celsius. And in Coquitlam, residents will be contending with weather that feels like 32 degrees Celsius. It's not autumn anymore, folks. In 2022, we call it autumn. Good news for most of us, but already the provincial government is warning us about potential flooding when the rains do arrive uh, as well. Uh, earlier this week, we talked about the Sunshine Coast and the potential uh, that that uh, region may run out of water by early November if they don't get rain soon. Now, this morning, um, we were also talking about what impact is this having on farmers? Uh, what does this drought mean for all those farmers that had to contend with lots and lots of rain uh, in the Fraser Valley late last year? Well, joining me now is Amir Mon from Mon Farms in Abbotsford. Amir, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, this time last year, uh, we were still in the early stages, but uh, in a few weeks, we'd be talking about the tremendous amount of rainfall for the Fraser Valley. Uh, it's a different conversation uh, at this particular point. Uh, give me a sense of, of what the uh, dry weather has meant for, for uh, farmers out in the valley. You know, it's, it's a mixed bag. Uh, farmers who have different crops are experiencing different things. 
Um, I, I just spoke to, you know, some of the, some of the stories I heard. So some, I have some friends who are in the sod business, mm-hmm. different type of farming, people who are growing grass. Um, there's one of the farms over in the, in the valley there in the Sumas area that have hundreds of acres and they are just going bonkers of wetting their grass. And they've been doing it since July. They can't get enough staff. They don't have enough equipment and they're just running on full tilt 24 seven watering their grass. So it's extremely difficult for them. Whereas, you know, pumpkin farmers or, or people who are growing uh, squash gourds or hardy uh, winter vegetables like ourselves and other farmers that I know of have had one of the nicest years for pumpkin hardening. And what that means is because this dry weather, the pumpkins rind the outside, the crust, the layers, they're so thick and they're so hardy. And they're, the, the color is beautifully orange, deep red orange. And the stems are so nice and green. The quality has been exceptional this year for pumpkins. It's been amazing. So it's a mixed bag across the across the field, but you know many people are um, rolling with the punches and trying to do the best they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to let's say blueberries, which uh, the harvest is over, of course, uh, do you have to sort of prep your land any differently because of this drought, or does this help? You know, so many farmers they're taking advantage of this dry weather to put in any irrigation systems that they can. Um, just getting the fields ready for planting in the spring um, that they, they will have to do later in the spring. But because, you know, we don't know what our weather is going to be like in spring, it might be extremely wet like last year. So they're taking advantage of this dry weather to do all that work now, where in previous years you would never be able to do that because it's so wet. Hmm. So people who do have blueberries they are, or are planting, planning to plant more blueberries have prepped their fields, have put in that infrastructure, and are taking advantage of this time. Um, people who already have their fields are, you know, taking this time to go out and prune. So they're, they're, they're using the weather to the advantages as much as they can. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's, it's unpredictable what, what this is going to do for subsequent years. So in regards to uh, the Mon farms, I know you were talking about gourds and squash, but you also have strawberries and raspberries and blueberries and pumpkins and, and grapes as well. So you have a variety of crops. I guess you've got to juggle all of those with this type of weather. Yeah, that's what we do. You know, it's we're a fun farm that grows over 90 acres of different fruits and vegetables. Um, and because we do so many different things, it can be challenging to make sure that every plant and every crop is getting what it needs at the right time. Um, and I think I think that's what it is. Farmers nowadays, they, they can't just grow one crop um, unless you do hundreds of acres of them or a large scale. Um, and if you are doing multiple crops, you have to be adaptable. You have to have the willingness to take risk towards investing towards your future and, um, you know, kind of putting things into your farm, which will help you mitigate the unpredictability of weather. You know, for us, what we've done is we've invested a lot of time and money um, into one of the first of its kind strawberry greenhouses in, in Canada, where the strawberries, uh, we're actually able to get four acres worth of strawberries in um in one acre of land so it's we're, we're doing these things to help us uh, in our farm to be a little bit more sustainable and not be so reactive mm-hmm. but be but be proactive uh speak to me a little bit about climate change and making f- uh, farms climate resilient uh, is that part of the broader conversation in the farming community now not just because of the drought but just the broader challenges that climate change uh, uh, is now forcing upon uh, the farming community you know what you just said right there climate resilient or farm you know 
making them climate resilient. I think that's an excellent term. I haven't had anybody actually articulate it and say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as in the farming community, we have been discussing, um, just to give you a little bit more insight on this, um, you know, when about 15, 20 years ago, farmers were able to go and plant strawberries, raspberries uh, in particular, and, and know when they were going to harvest it within a week's period of time or you know, even a few days. They, they were able to predict it. Now, due to the weather and the anomalies that we have, um, people don't even know, um, they're not even able to predict that harvest date within three weeks. It's, it's completely absurd. It's very difficult to be a farmer um, with the current climate you know, environment that we have. Um, but farmers who are taking the risk, like I was saying before, and are innovating towards being climate resilient, are surviving and they're you know they're not just surviving they're um they're exceeding they're exceeding the other farms they're they're doing above average in regards to yield per acre uh you know cost per or what they're able to charge um per pound because they just have better quality fruit they have fruit more consistently throughout the year and um, they're able to offer it to more customers um on a consistent basis so it's 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 the farms that do take the risk towards being climate resilient, like what you just said, are the farms that are going to succeed in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's a very interesting year. Uh, we're heading into a weekend with high temperatures, summer-like temperatures. Uh, a lot of yep. folks are already not calling it autumn, but hot autumn. And uh, I think it, uh, it's appropriate. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we, we are loving the weather, of course, but we all do want uh, a bit of rain for the region as well and, and, uh, and some predictability, not just for all our lives, but especially for farmers as well. Uh, Amir, thank you so much yep. for your time, my friend. Wonderful chatting with you. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Yeah, and just the last thing, I just want to share the, the finishing moments here. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention that for anybody in the community right now that wants to go out and experience uh, the fall, I recommend doing it sooner than later. Um, as a farm that offers experiences to the public, we've seen a large incri- increase in, in uh, people visiting our farm now. And I think this is only going to increase to the very end of October because the market sentiment has changed to where, it's, where people didn't go out to the farms and go to the pumpkin patches or eat a pumpkin ice cream earlier on in September like they did, and they're leaving until last minute. So my recommendation is if you're going to go buy a pumpkin at a farm or visit a, a, uh, a petting zoo like we have, go do it now before it's too late, before you get farm sellout, because that's what I'm hearing from the public. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Amir. All the best. Thank you. Our next guest has heard it all and then some. Francis Bula covers urban issues and politics for the Globe and Mail. Francis, good afternoon. Hello on this beautiful afternoon. It's actually going to get even. Day. I know it's going to get even more beautiful, or at least warmer uh, this weekend as well. Thirty degrees oh. to thirty-two degrees in some places as well. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, the reason they call it hot, I guess. And uh, lots to talk about. I'm not even sure where to begin. Maybe we should start um, in Vancouver first. Uh, love your impressions in regards to this campaign. What are your thoughts on how this campaign has gone over the last four to six weeks? Well, it's been a bit of a mess. Um, you, you know, there's been sort of accusations, inaccurate accusations flying around here and there. Um, I think a lot of confusion on the part of voters about, uh, you know, even if I decide which mayoral candidate I'm supporting, who who do I support for on, you know, who do I vote for on council? 
Um, no one's running a full slate, so I think some people feel they have to vote for all 10 spots and they're wondering, wondering what to do. And a lot of people just trying to figure out who these parties are and who do I align with. Um, in regards to the issues that we've been that have been discussed, certainly today, uh, Mike Harcourt came out in support of Kennedy Stewart. Mr. Harcourt was on uh, this show um, in the first half hour. Uh, crime has played a role. Um, there have been other issues as well. Has there, has there been one issue in your mind that has sort of uh, played an outsized role in this in the in the Vancouver conversation? Well, I mean, the two big issues, and I think this is true for a lot of the urban cities. And sorry, I have a bit of a cough, so if I cough. Uh, please Not a problem. In, in advance. <laughs> <clears throat> but I think <clears throat> there's very similar issues for a lot of cities, ranging from Prince George, where they had a gigantic all-candidates meeting that was just dedicated to the drug crisis, mm-hmm. the opioid poisoning crisis. Um, so uh, it's housing. What, what, if anything, cities are promising to do about housing in terms of, <clears throat> you know, allowing smaller units, um, on single-family lots so that, you know, four families could maybe combine and, you know, have something uh, in a residential area, um, <coughs> support for social housing and things like that. And uh, and then, obviously, the issue that, that gets a lot of things get wrapped into it together that maybe shouldn't all necessarily be, but crime, uh, public disorder, uh, mental health, severe mental health issues that are visible on the street, um, drug poisoning, and, um, you know, homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, and I know you're sick today, and I really do appreciate you joining us today. So I do appreciate that, um, yeah. uh, Francis. Um, it's hard to predict. I'm not going to ask you to predict a winner because I think it's always difficult to, in these races. Uh, are, are there parties that seem to have momentum at this particular point in your mind? Well, it seems fairly clear from every single poll I've seen, and even the parties that are behind are not really disputing it. The two front runners are Kennedy Stewart and whatever, well, I don't know what's happening with his council, what, what he might do with a, with a council support, because there's 23 different candidates on the sort of left progressive side, and I don't know how people are picking. But Kennedy Stewart and Ken Sim... And Ken Sim has a more clearly identifiable slate of seven councillors, um, so that makes it a bit easier for people supporting him. And, uh, you know, there is quite a protest vote going to Colleen Hardwick with her promise that we don't need all this development, we can absorb people, you know, just through existing zoning or gentler density or whatever. Mark Marison, who's saying, you know, housing everywhere, like super pro-housing, and the NPA, um, which used to be, as you know, the dominant um, uh, party, in political party in Vancouver civic politics for decades, but which has, you know, really declined and essentially become the Vancouver version, as far as I can tell, of the capital C Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. And, and, and do you see sort of the it fading away or do you think it's just going to be the sort of the big C small C conservative party uh, that just uh, well past its heyday the NPA the way they the way they are now they've uh, you know ABC the Ken Sim party has essentially transformed itself into what the NPA used to be in the 90s which is this amalgam of you know somewhat you know people who would say 
identify as conservative or liberal in a federal election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's sort of center right, but not too center right. And uh, and and so the NPA currently it's dominated by people who. You know, our, it really is a vehicle for conservative party politics. Uh, is this a change election? I mean, uh, we, we, you know, some have said, you know, we could have a new mayor for the city of Vancouver. But do you feel that this is a change election just because of the conversation that's been going on the last six six weeks or so? Well, I think a lot of people think it is going to be a change election, and not just in Vancouver, like in many cities that have been, you know, really having a hard time with the way people feel the city has declined and they can't afford to live there anymore. I mean, Vancouver, Victoria, Nanaimo, not Nanaimo so much, I think Leonard Krogh is fine there, Um, you know, Kelowna, various places, there's just this sense of you know, people being really frustrated and and sort of why are none of the current solutions working and why does it seem to be getting worse? So, I mean, that's what obviously the Ken Sim party, is, uh, ABC party, is hoping for, that it is a change election, that people have said, we've had enough of the wokeness or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. We want a coordinated team uh, that has an agenda and carries it out, even if we don't agree with it all, but at least <laughs> they have a clear agenda and they have the votes to be able to do it instead of the chaos of the last four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there are a certain number of people, but, you know, Vancouver is a super lefty, progressive city, and so you just cannot uh, write off um, the, the the left uh, very easily here. I remember when I was covering Gregor Robertson versus Kirk Lapointe, and mm-hmm. all day long I went every lineup I went to, people were so angry at Gregor Robertson. All I got was people practically spitting in my face, you know, like <laughs> as they were telling me how upset they were, and I was like, "Oh, I think they're going to lose," you know, like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that wasn't quite enough to overcome what's a pretty steady vote in Vancouver for the left. So uh, we'll see this time. I I do feel like there's more momentum on the Ken Sim side, but, you know, I also know that um, the Kennedy Stewart's party has been pouring money into um, advertising and direct mail and every other thing the last 10 days. So... We'll see. Uh, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the Vancouver race. Uh, let's look at the other behemoth in the lower mainland when it comes to population, and that is Surrey. Um, what are your thoughts on the Surrey election? It's a tough one uh, in my mind to predict. What's your overall thoughts on what you've seen and oh, heard, Francis? It's so, it's so hard in Surrey because it really isn't about left-right. That isn't really the way people vote. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more... Is this person credible in my community? What do I think they can deliver? Who their voter base is? So, I mean, I'm as as we all know, there was a poll that came out showing Brenda Locke in the lead, and then Doug McCallum, and then after that, I think Gordy Hogue and um, Suk Dollywall was quite low, and Ginny Sims was, you know, I think like 13 or something. So. Um, uh, it, to me, it speaks to how upset people were about the police because Brenda Locke is really advocating that they stop the transition to a Surrey police service and go back to the RCMP. And there was a huge group of people in Surrey mobilized over that, and it looks like that's really having some kind of an impact because that has been her main issue. 
and she's, uh, you know, apparently leading in the polls. And so I have to believe that those two are connected. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think the one of the polls I looked at, there was, uh, you know, 35% were undecided. You have language challenges yeah. as well, sizable uh, South Asian population, a yeah. fast-growing uh, Chinese population. So it's I always uh, I'm get a bit skeptical about some of those polls. I think they give oh, you... Oh, yeah. No, no. They're all, you know better than I do, though. Those polls are it's really problematic. And out of all those people who actually vote, you know, like that's the whole other thing. Yeah, and it's partially, I think those polls are great for broad trend lines, uh, but they're hard to, to, to get specific sense of what that support is, because like I said, uh, you know, you've got to, you can't just be an English language poll, it's got to be Punjabi and Cantonese uh, and yeah. Mandarin. I guess a lot of it is also about competence and trust, I think. Mr. Uh, McCallum has been, had a, incredibly, and, and the slate that he represents, have had a very colorful few years here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be very really Adjective. I'm trying to be very Let diplomatic here. about another word for <laughs> colorful. <laughs> well, I can, I'm trying to be very diplomatic and people can decide on their own. Uh, but uh, yeah. I, I think that's I mean, a lot of like it. like the mayor is facing a trial shortly after the election. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you mean by colorful? <laughs> oh, Lord, yes, very yes. colorful. Uh, yeah, a very unusual term, people being banned from city council, like very personal altercations, uh, just methods methods mm-hmm. yeah um you know let's uh, just for a moment step away from the election uh, it's it's sunday or monday you've got an ndp well, supposed to be a leadership race. That's another. That's another colorful uh, event uh, that is occurring. It's very different in regards to whether it's going to be a coronation where the other person is going to be allowed to run. But let's just say Mr. Eby does move forward and he it does bring changes uh, in regards to housing across the province. He's talked about three units uh, per lot, which I know uh, Mr. Stewart's already Kennedy Stewart's already talked about in, in, in that in Vancouver and even more. Oh, so. that exists in Vancouver pretty exactly. much already. But all the other changes, a lot of the things that we're yeah. talking about for the region. Do you see a period now where they're actually going to be, there's going to be more carrot, uh, more stick when it comes to the provincial government? Do you see uh, some... you're asking me really tough questions here. (laughs) I mean, I think that in general, even though a lot of people have been going on and on about how David Eby is going to force everybody to do everything, he's generally been trying to not have too much of a stick. Like the main thing I've heard him talk about is having cities produce reports identifying what how much they need to build to meet housing need in the region, and then, and then having some obligation to meet that in some way. They can't just shut the door, as District of North Band has done largely, and then expect everyone else in the region to kind of pick up the slack. Uh, so, um, but, you know, it's going to be interesting depending on what kind of change. Like in District of North Band, you have a very, uh, a council that was, kind of turned down a lot of what people thought were very good housing projects being challenged by a younger uh, candidate, Matthew Bond, who's, who's very pro-housing. So it could be interesting if there's a change there. Mm-hmm. And in some other municipalities, I mean, the minister might feel like, or uh, uh, David Eby might feel like um, he doesn't need to do so much if it feels like there's a number of people elected who are kind of more on board with allowing more housing choice in their municipalities. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be an interesting evening. Uh, I know you'll be busy, I'll be busy as well. We'll have lots to talk about next week. Francis, thank you so much for your time. 
And thanks for your uh, interest and um, informed questions on all of this. <laughs> the, the most people are totally bored by civic politics and they know nothing. So, <laughs> Well, it does uh, impact us when they make those big, broad decisions on, on where we live and how we live and, and a lot of development as well. Thank you so much, Francis. Okay, thank you. As we learned uh, well, a couple of hours ago, the Dutch man convicted of extorting and harassing BC teenager Amanda Todd has been sentenced to 13 years in prison. Eden Coban uh, learned his fate in U.S. Minster Supreme Court today, a decade after Todd's suicide uh, prompted a nationwide conversation about cybersecurity and online bullying. Weeks before her death, the young Port uh, Coquitlam resident posted a YouTube video detailing how she had been targeted and tormented by a stranger on the Internet. Todd took her own life on October 10, 2012, at the age of 15. Uh, Since that day, and uh, uh, through numerous newscasts, you've seen our next guest, you've heard our next guest, you've heard, uh, read about what she has said to say in newspapers. She uh, has uh, been there since day one. She was there today. Carol Todd is Amanda Todd's mother, and she joins us now. Carol, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me, Jack. your thoughts uh, when that verdict came down? Um, what went through your mind? Um, I had to actually ask my son, who was sitting next to me, if I had heard correctly. Um, I think I was expecting a lower sentence just because Crown had initially asked 12 and defense asked 6 and then 2. Um, so I didn't think that 12 was even going to be in the range. And then when Justice Devlin went to 13, it was just my heart. Just I pulled my heart steady was, mm-hmm. was what I needed. So um, I am truly happy that this, it came to this. Like 13 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, this is a tough one to answer. And, uh, you know, I, I, but I think I should ask, can you give me a sense of what it was like all these years coming to court, uh, talking to media about this case. I mean, uh, you know, my sense of things is always that, you know, long after the cameras are gone and reporters are gone, and you know, individuals have to deal with their grief. Individuals have to deal with the stresses and the pains. What has kept you going all these years? What has kept me going? I, I have a funny feeling, and people have asked me this over the years, um, I think some of it comes from my own childhood um, and then having my son and my daughter uh, and, and going through some of the turbulences of, of life and being an educator. And so advocacy has always been uh, near and dear to me because I, as a, a special ed educator, I was always there to advocate for my, my students and my families. And as Amanda grew up and she had some learning disabilities and her mental health, I advocated for her. And after she passed away, it just didn't, it, it seemed normal to continue to advocate for something that I felt so strongly about that needed change. And um, back in 2009 and 2010, when she was being exploited and, and now we know the word extorted, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and people around me didn't know what that was and then she died by suicide and then it was oh well you know extortion it's just coming into the internet as as a as a terminology 
um, I felt it was really important that people understood what that meant because now look in 2022, and if you Google search extortion and and find out what's what's going on around the world, it's everywhere. And that's the accessibility to the internet, the ability to hide behind the screen. And so this sets precedence and awareness and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of parents listening uh, to us right now. What would you want to say to them uh, in regards to what some of the issues that you brought up uh, here? I mean, in this case, mm-hmm. I, I do believe Mr. Coban had uh, two different, two dozen different aliases. So one person can be 24 people, 30 people, just based yeah. on the aliases. Um, a lot of parents out there listening. What would you want to say to them today? I would say to learn more about how the internet works, what goes on in the in the in the internet world, the accessibility of um, chat functions in, in different applications. Ha- learn about it. Have those conversations with your kids. And some people will, some parents will say, well, what at what age do we start that conversation? You can start that conversation really young. I was just listening to some police officers in the United States, and they were talking about kids as young as five years old were being exploited in sex stores started online through simple gaming apps that we thought were innocent. So anybody can hide behind an avatar and ask those questions to your child. How old are you? Where do you go to school? And and innocent young children who don't know any better will just talk and tell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, have to, we have to have those pre-existing conversations with our kids about this is what you don't say to someone that you don't know. Like, yeah. We had those conversations before there was technology, the stranger danger talks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We have to have those technology talks with our kids. And then as kids get older, um, we have to talk about sexting, sending nude images, um, who you, who you friend on, who you befriend on the internet, how to, how to check to see if that a person's real on the internet. You know what? I never thought I'd be in this situation of losing my daughter, of, Sitting here today in front of BC Supreme Court, having seen that her predator was convicted of 13 sentence for 13 years, never knew all those things. I never expected it to happen in my family, um, and no one does either, right? Do you think that we need tougher laws? And the U.S. is looking at some of this already, but do you think we need tougher laws that holds? some of these internet giants, whether it be Google or their ownership of YouTube or Mark Zuckerberg and his ownership of Facebook and Instagram, uh, we have TikTok as well and Twitter, do you think there needs to be greater accountability uh, demanded from internet giants, social media giants, beyond giving them the, the go-ahead saying, well, you just, you just pass along the message. You're not actually liable. Do we need greater accountability and laws that are tougher laws to demand greater accountability from some of these online sources? Oh, definitely so, right? These, these social media networks and, and the bigger ones, right, often just do what they want to do, and they have the money and the power if someone wants to um, go after them to change. They don't, but there has to be some grouping together of... of organizations to go after these and, and the government is a good one right to, to make sure there's regulatory practices on social media networks 
in order to protect our our children and families. And so I think there is something that came out of the out of the UK last week about Molly, um, and and Molly was had mental health issues, but she was her her social media feeds were just filling up with things that she had searched on about you know um, self harm, mm-hmm. and there was some legislation passed out there. I know that Canada. It, the federal government is holding roundtables looking at the regulatory processes of social networking and the harm that it brings. So that's a start, right? And I know the U.S. is doing a roundtable, um, the White House is doing a roundtable on regulatory and what social media networks are bringing into our stream. So it, it's coming. Everything's a slow process, but we can't give up. We can't stop the fight even though it gets frustrating at times. And I have to say that Amanda's case, going to court, it got frustrating because it kept getting postponed or, you know, the delays and the waits. And and 10 years later, here we are. And her case now, what happened today is is case precedent setting for other kids, families, and trials that will go on in the future. Um. Tara, you've sat in that courtroom, you've talked to police over the years and their broad uh, investigation. Um, Do you have any sense of Mr. Uh, Koban and why he did what he did? What makes him tick? I mean, sometimes if you just view somebody and see them and and, and witness their comments, what's your sense of who he is? Truthfully? Mm Mm-hmm. He is a narcissist, sociopathic man who has not admitted to any of the crimes he, he has committed against any of those individuals in the Netherlands for which he's serving an almost 11-year sentence. And now, like, one of the reasons why he wanted to be extradited to, um, to Canada was so that he could get acquitted, so that he could be found not guilty and clear his name. He wrote a four-page letter back in 2016 and sent it to the press so that we could all read it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the Netherlands in 2017 for the, the Dutch trial, and I saw the same kind of arrogance um, that he displayed here. And through his lawyers, you could tell that, you know, not, a, not an ownership of doing any wrongdoing, but luckily the judges there saw through him and gave him 11 years. And luckily, the judge here saw through and gave him thirteen. Yeah, Carol, uh, it's it's been a, a huge day for you, and uh, and I really appreciate you taking your time uh, for us today and for our audience and speaking to CKNW. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me, Jazz. We continue our coverage of the Aiden Coban sentencing, and while today is certainly an important day in the years-long legal battle, it's also an opportunity for us to remember and honor Amanda Todd and her ongoing legacy. Our show contributor, John Jang, has more. We have all been blessed with the gift of creating impact and a path for new solutions and for being the women that our youth can look up to and learn from. But my biggest thank you goes to Amanda for being the daughter she was and for teaching me so much, both in life and in death. We must always take the time to look at the stories that are in front of us. 
From those stories, we learn our life lessons, which allow us to teach and help others. The question I most often want to ask those I meet in this journey is, what is the legacy of change that you want to leave behind in this world? No lesson was as devastating to me as is what is now known as Amanda's story, or in better words, Amanda's legacy. What I wouldn't give for another moment with my daughter. I learned firsthand as a parent about the worries and stresses of having a child in distress and feeling so utterly hopeless that I couldn't make it better with just my love or a Band-Aid or a kiss. By speaking up about bullying, cyber abuse, internet safety, and mental health, we know that education and awareness is being added to a landscape that will bring together the conversations needed to break the cycle of harm to others. It's a bittersweet day for Carol Todd. And though the man who tormented her daughter Amanda has been sentenced to 13 years behind bars, in truth it has now been over 10 years since mom and daughter were together in the same room. It's been 10 years since Carol has been able to hug and hold Amanda the way any mother would for their upset child. Ten long years. On this day, as we learn about the sentencing and find some relief in knowing that justice can still be served, we should do our part to remember and honor Amanda. You see, Amanda would have been turning 26 years old this year. In fact, she would have been 26 just next month. Amanda could have been one of your favorite neighbors, perhaps someone that your son or daughter would be working with and very easily could have been friends with. We'll never know the woman that Amanda Todd could have turned out to be. But there's no doubt that Amanda would have been singing. You see, Amanda Todd loved to sing. But while you and I are too shy to sing in front of a crowd, sometimes even too shy to sing in our cars, Amanda's voice was meant to be heard. You don't know my name. You don't know anything about me. I try to play nice. I want to be in your game. The things that you say. You may think I never hear about them. And but a word travels fast. I'm telling to your I'm standing here inside my head You don't know how it feels To be outside the crowd You don't know what it's like To be left out And you don't know how it feels To be your best friend On the outside looking in Even though this trial might be over and the sentence has been handed down, Amanda's story and Amanda's legacy will and should live on. You can find more ways to help today by visiting amandataudlegacy.org. Hi, my name's Amanda, and I always like to sing O Canada before I sing any song. O Canada, our home
Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. <laughs>